we're looking at like a 38% net decrease. I'm looking around and like, how are we going to survive this? It's not good now. And it's projected to get a whole lot worse. So um, to me, this just felt like, well, how would Amazon solve this problem? Would they tolerate this kind of process efficiency and overspending, which is literally driving hospitals and health systems into insolvency, right? And it just felt like it needed some technology and lives could literally be saved. Hey everybody, I just got done recording this episode with Sarah Well, the founder of Dropstat, and it's a really good episode. You're going to want to listen to this. Uh, she breaks down what it's like for health, uh, hospital healthcare workers to be working bedside in the hospital and how stressful, how difficult the job is. Uh, when she identified, you know, working firsthand in the industry, uh, she identified a potential solution to solve some of these pain points. And uh, you know, about halfway through the episode, she actually shares the secret sauce of the company that she's building. Uh, and the the outcome of her product on healthcare systems was so powerful that her first three customers actually became investors. Uh, that's almost unheard of, but a super amazing story. She gets into the full breakdown of how the customers became investors and also specifically what that secret sauce is. Uh, inside of her product and her company. So stay tuned, listen through the full episode if you want to hear the secret sauce, and I hope you enjoy. So we got Sarah Well on the podcast today. So Sarah is the founder of Dropstat, and it's uh, I'm really interested to dig into your company. So like in the healthcare industry, obviously everyone knows there's a lot of inefficiencies and you know, no surprise, one of those inefficiencies is with the utilization of staff. And uh, you know, if anybody knows a healthcare worker, I'm sure they've heard stories about how stressful and sometimes emotionally draining the job can be. So uh, you founded Dropstat specifically to solve that uh, industry challenge. Yeah, exactly. And to speak to your point, um, funny story, when I was uh, fundraising for our our angel round, because um, FYI, um, contrary to Silicon Valley's uh, uh, story, success stories that are often touted, Um, Many of us don't have um, super wealthy uh, networks and grandmas that happen to be qualified uh, as certified investors with large stacks of cash that they're looking to invest in your angel round. So I actually did have to source angels. Um, And one of the things that I remember was said to me was, well, you know, you're going from this 12 hour workday, working three plus shifts, of, you know, a week as a nurse, how are you going to manage these 80 hour weeks that that founders work? And I was like, that's a walk in the park compared to patient management in a, especially in a critical care setting where you really don't have like bodily autonomy. You can't just, you know, even if you have a scheduled lunch break, um, Little things like being able to eat and drink when you're hungry or thirsty, um, being able to use the restroom, you have to, you can't just walk away from ventilated patients. You have to give report on your patients, even step away for, you know, a few minutes. Um, When you sit and, and work at a desk, that's air conditioned and you're not in an isolation room for hours and hours um, on end on your feet all day, like respectfully, that's, That's easy. And I have to say, 
Um, being now in our kind of series A level, I can honestly say, even with working 20 hours a day, there has not been a single day that I feel like I've worked harder than when I was doing 12 hours as a critical care trauma nurse at the bedside. I, I don't know if people fully comprehend how much our frontline healthcare workers really give to their patients. So um, yes, just to speak to your your first point, um, it's, it's not just um, staffing issue in and of itself. I think the, the level of effort that we as healthcare workers pour into our patients um, done right is just something that I think is, is hard to comprehend. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, I've never worked, you know, as a healthcare worker, but, uh, you know, I've built companies and I know how many hours and how much stress goes into building a company. So to hear, you know, to hear that story from you as you've done both now, uh, that's really just an incredible, uh, you know, firsthand experience to share. Uh, I don't know if you want to dive into that a little bit deeper first, or if you want to kind of like maybe do a founder story of Dropstat and how, you know, you kind of just alluded to, the preface of the company, but uh, maybe just kind of go into the full story of, uh, you know, what it was like, what, you know, when you had that first idea for building the company, what was that aha moment? And, you know, what did you like, what were the next steps that you took after that aha moment? Yeah, I think a lot of it came uh, a little bit kind of built gradually over time, right? So if you look at healthcare systems, sometimes you'll walk into these uh, lobbies of these really well-funded UC health systems. And um, there's just these incredible hospitals with these huge gardens and these $20 million lobbies. And I've worked in many of these. And um, what people don't know is that despite the $10 million garden, um, there's often, or I would say rarely, enough staff. And I watch this, you know, coming to work every day, um, watching gamma knife surgery come to the eighth floor and minimally invasive robotics on the third. And as I worked my way up, I noticed that the technology really missed us in workforce, right? Like I worked my way up, so now I'm the staffing manager. And despite all this technology in other spaces, I'm manually calculating my staffing needs and calling and texting staff to come into work as if we were left behind a solid 40 years of progress, right? And this is, I hate to refer to patients as the revenue line of the hospital, but let's face it, they are. Um, so it was impacting not just the biggest labor operating expense in the healthcare system, right? Because if I'm calling and texting people and I can't reach anyone, we're going to have to utilize uh, temporary labor solutions that are incredibly expensive, right? Travel staffing, over allocating overtime. And the process itself really was lacking all this incredible tech that I was seeing around me in all these other and when, spaces. When you say tech, you're just literally talking about like resource planning, you know, uh, HR tools, just standard tools that most industries use. You're not talking about like the like the hardware tech, the medical device tech in a hospital, but more like that resource planning stuff. Yeah, any process efficiency, right? Like to get a lab specimen from, you know, any floor in the hospital down to 
um, down to our lab, we have like a tube system that runs through the hospital, right? You just program where you want to send it and it gets sent. And I'm sitting here like, can you come into work? Can you come into work? And what's wild is that I, I can only reach the staff on my unit, right? Where there's six other ICUs that are cross-trained to work my unit, right? Burn ICU can pick up in trauma ICU. Neuro ICU can per- pick up in, in uh, trauma ICU. CV ICU, cardiovascular ICU. But I can't reach these people, Right. I can only reach, let's say, 250 people instead of a thousand. And you have to text them one by one. (laughs) Exactly. So the process, the process and efficiency itself, like net effect, I'm over allocating over time. I'm I'm utilizing temporary staffing resources that are what an extra fifty thousand dollars ahead to go use uh, travel staffing, which um, no hate to that. That's not going anywhere (laughs) where that we're going to need those resources in these coming years. But do we need them as frequently? Right. And we're overspending so much now because we don't have really good process efficiency internally around this um, that we can't even hire the people we need. And we can't give people the salary increases that we need to retain them. So we're essentially solving a short term problem and creating a whole host of long term problems. And we well know that we've lost 500,000 nurses to COVID fatigue and 1 million more aging out within the next few years. What people don't understand is that the healthcare system is built on the back of nurses. We are the operational executors of healthcare plans, meaning physicians typically in hospitals decide on the on the plan of care, and it is the nurses who execute on that plan, right? So w- without a labor operating arm in healthcare. And we're looking at like a 38% net decrease. I'm looking around and like, how are we going to survive this? It's not good now. And it's projected to get a whole lot worse. So um, to me, this just felt like, well, how would Amazon solve this problem? Would they tolerate this kind of process efficiency and overspending, which is literally driving hospitals and health systems into insolvency, right? And it just felt like it needed some technology and lives could literally be saved. I mean, picture the scenario, right? Someone you love has a stroke and there's a stroke center three blocks away, but they are on divert because they don't have enough staff. And not having enough staff could literally mean they don't have the right technology tools to reach the people who may be internally trained and capable of picking up that shift, but they're not able to reach that person, right? If I can only reach people, the 200 people in my unit, where there may be a, you know an extra four or five hundred people that I could reach that are qualified to pick up that shift internally without driving up overtime and uh, temporary labor costs. Um, Why should we be losing people when those are literally lives saved? If you want to talk about it from a financial perspective, that's a revenue loss. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And, And an upcharge on our temporary labor services. So it just didn't make sense from from you know an opex perspective from um a workforce perspective from from an ethos perspective and aren't we trying to save lives and and this process is really inhibiting that um it just felt like something needed to be done quickly that's a really great founder story i mean a lot of uh a lot of startup founders especially in tech they're just you know kind of nerds and they you know they're just they want to do something that is going to make a lot of money and so you know you can kind of try to backfill in an interesting story for the inception of a company. But, you know, the way that you just told that story, that just like really 
resonated that, you know, you've lived that pain, that experience firsthand, and that you really see a better way to do it. It's, you know, that amazing founder story. I, I love that, uh, you know, that, that whole uh, trajectory of how you got here. So uh, I'm curious, th- this is your first company, right? Yes. Well, also to speak to your point, I think a lot of healthcare professionals are really ideally positioned to solve a lot of problems from the bedside, right? Like we experience these issues firsthand and um, our entire perspective on patient care is like, we have to figure out what we need to figure out to take care of our patients. A lot of it's not in the textbook. So that process, I think for me, was was actually um, really, really well honed just because I had been practicing, you know, as a nurse at the bedside for a solid 12 years. Um, you know, there are times where, especially in trauma, you walk into the room and like the X fix or the the product that orthopedics put together on the patient in front of you is not in the textbook. You know, like it's so clean and easy when we learn this stuff and, uh, you know, about healthcare issues in, you know, from textbooks, there's the, the respiratory section is, is one chapter and the cardiovascular section is another chapter and, um, you know, kidney and nephrology is like a whole other section, right? Well, in vivo, you mix all those problems together and then that's your patient, right? Typically, the the patient may come in with a trauma, not knowing that they had um, diabetes and underlying kidney issues, right? So um, it, there's always a host of issues where the treatment for one uh, complicates, you know, the 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 treatment for another issue that the patient has concurrently. So the the problem solving. Um, quickly the the necessity to learn on your feet and problem solve with a sense of urgency um, and expedite your care and think 10 steps ahead um, is very much something that I think healthcare professionals are are already primed for. What people may not know is that there's a lot of inhibitors that um, are put into place sometimes by healthcare systems that gatekeep health, healthcare professionals from creating, I would say, even more of these types of solutions. Um, one of which is that they make you sign off on your IP when you go to work for these health systems, right? So any idea that you come up with while working at that organization or facility, they will make you sign off that it that they own that IP and, and solution. So without realizing it, they really inhibit our ability to really grow um, in, in our capacity to effectively take care of patients leveraging critically needed technology. Um, so I would say if anyone listening to this is in healthcare and has an idea or solution, um, probably my best two cents would be to get yourself a second part-time job, step away from that full-time so that you're you're not subject to those um, policies and and uh, signing off on your IP because these solutions are critically needed. And um, healthcare professionals who are working and have hands on the patients and are directly in contact with these pain points every day are in such a critically needed position to be able to come up with products and solutions that can take us to the next level. And I'd imagine, you know, trying even if you tried to build one of these innovations inside of a healthcare system, you probably have 50 meetings just to even get a single decision made. Whereas, you know, as a startup, what you can do, call your team into a 
a, a meeting and, you know, 30 minutes, you've got the decision, you've got the plan of action and you're all off, you know, making it happen. So, uh, you know, I think these types of innovations probably really can't happen inside of a healthcare system. That is so on point. And not just that, but, you know, nobody gets fired from using a broken process that's been used for years, right? Um, someone will get fired if you try to bring in a new technology and it messes up the OR schedules and meaning there's so much at stake and the margin of error is so narrow that coupled with the fact that no one's really incentivized on a C-suite level to bring in that innovation, right? Like they're People are not finance, you know, maybe from a marketing perspective, they get their name in lights more if they write the research than if they bring in the new product. They're, they're really, most of our health systems, people don't realize are kind of marketing companies um, that are run by attorneys, right? So there's, there's the marketing and how everything looks. And then there's what is the liability and potential um, downside, right? So there's so much fear in this space that getting new products and technology kind of runs in opposition to um, the risk aversion of the attorneys in these spaces and the risk of what a failure can look like, you know, some of it appropriately placed, you know, you really can't mess with healthcare operations that are 24 seven and there, there's so much on the line. Um, but I, I hope that's going to change, you know, because I, I do think that there's a way to bring these innovations in, in a way that's controlled. We are, we are seeing, um, more innovation hubs starting to come up, uh, within some of these, uh, healthcare facilities, sometimes more from like, you know, a, uh, I would say a financial benefit to the organization if they can own the technology and kind of license it out and, um, you know, they'll want it to come through their own innovation centers. But, you know, uh, completely agree. I think in any enterprise organization, big lumbering giants are big lumbering giants. And we know that big organizations can't really innovate, right? By the time you have a meeting, like you said, to have a meeting about whether you should have a meeting and what the financial forecasting is going to be and what the risk assessment is, the opportunity has been lost, right? So if you do have an idea, correct. I would not suggest <laughs> using internal channels. Um, you're going to want to beta that product um, in an environment where you can get quick adoption and engagement, um, put out your white papers, show the financial value of the product, um, be able to clearly demonstrate risk mitigation, um, and that's not going to come from inside the organization. You're going to have to step away and build that on the outside. There's just too many barriers, I think, to be able to, you know, typically to build that out internally. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's true, I think, for, you know, as you put it, for any enterprise organization, but uh, healthcare, especially, I think, if you look at, you know, Gartner and Forrester and these, you know, different research uh companies put out reports on different industry segments and healthcare is usually kind of smack dab at the bottom of innovation with, you know, government and other, uh, other really uh, slow moving laggards. So it's, uh, it's much needed. I mean, the whole industry as a, as a whole, I think is uh, 
is lagging on a lot of things. It's it's amazing, you know, like these medical device and surgical innovations are, you know, next level, especially in the US. We've got some of the best, uh, you know, technology for, uh, you know, performing procedures and for, you know, uh, discovering issues and whatnot, but the uh, just like operationally and just in terms of, you know, how, how the organizations are run, uh, leveraging technology, it's, you know, super behind. Uh, going back to your founder story. So I'm curious, you know, I saw you started Dropstat in 2017. Uh, actually, I think you just had your uh, three-year or sorry, six-year anniversary of the company. Uh, so when you founded the company, was this like uh, a, a, just an immediate hell yes, like I have to do this? Or, you know, did you, you know, kind of have, you know, concerns about founding it? Or what, what was like your mindset when you had this realization for the you know, for the business model, you know, what, what was kind of like your first steps and how did you arrive at, at doing it? Yeah. So I, I founded the, uh, the LLC initially in 2017, I wanted the company to own the research. So the product didn't actually deploy until 2021. So we're about, you know, two years in to our, you know, product deployment. So initially I wanted to make sure that we could test everything as much as possible in a controlled beta environment, leveraging the nurses that I knew, the, um, you know, the staffing managers that I knew so that when we do walk a beta product into a healthcare organization, it's um, kind of wearing a dress and heels, if you, if you will, you know, that, that story of, you know, just take any product into an organization and, you know, the product never survives its first touch with the market. And it's, it's expected that your first product will embarrass you. Those things may work well in other industries In healthcare. It doesn't work like that. You need to make sure that the product works or you're, you're just, you're not going to get a second chance and there's too much at risk. You won't even get that initial beta, right? So the, the beta product in healthcare has to be different than a beta product in a different industry. So um, spent a lot of years getting, you know, kind of doing the research and, and getting feedback and, and building the product that I would have loved to have in my hands as a staffing manager at a big health system, right? So kind of prior state, call text, wait, can you come into work? Current state drops that uses AI to predict your healthcare staffing needs 60 days in advance, looking at your FTEs, your full-time staff that you have on hand versus how many you need, which it calculates with an internal staffing calculator based on the acuity of the patients in any specific area and the state requirement for how many staff you will then need. It auto-generates its own staff schedules based on that acuity. It spits out a required number of staff and calculates how many staff you have on hand. And then here's the secret sauce. It communicates open staffing needs first to internal staff, then to all your cross-trained teams and float teams. And then it's integrated with uh, locally sourced W-2 staffing marketplaces so that um, we walk into an organization and take them from about, well, we have about 65% of the staff that we need to fill all the shifts that we have um, using Dropstat alone will take you to about 75, 80%. And because we then integrate with all these other locally sourced markets, we can then get an organization up to about 95 to 98% um, fully staffed, ensuring safe labor loads, which obviously uh, decreases the chances of, of healthcare staff burnout. And um, 
helps create better retention while while simultaneously um, driving down uh, overtime allocation and the necessity for temporary uh, for temporary labor. So, you know, looking at at the uh, staffing shortage that that we're going to see over the next few years with about a million nurses aging out of bedside care, we are not going to displace travel staffing. We're not going to displace temporary labor solutions. What we'd like to see is that they're not clustered and overutilized in any one organization to where it can drive them to insolvency, right? Um, Those solutions can be spread out to more rural um, hospitals, which are in dire need of of staffing solutions as well. Um, We'll be able to more equitably distribute those staffing solutions and at the same time, create a more survivable P&L for these health systems, if you will. So that product, that fully flushed out solution uh, that we didn't deploy until about 2021. And um, uh, our first three clients, we accidentally 4X'd what we thought we were going to save them. And I say accidentally because I thought I was building a um, process efficiency tool where really we turned out to be um, a cost management product, <laughs> right? So like you end up having to restructure how you communicate the value prop of the product um, based on some surprising findings when you when you take that product to market. So our first three clients became investors on our on our angel round, and then I was able to um, rally some of the surgeons that I had worked with for years in trauma SICU who, believe it or not, because of staffing issues, weren't able to take their um, elective procedures into the into the hospital to get those um, to get those patients cared for because of staffing issues, right? So they're they're being impacted by this issue every day. So they were kind of all in on that. And then since since we you know we got our first three clients uh, as investors, um, since then I would say about three more have joined our investment um committee or our, our team of investors um on on subsequent rounds as well so uh, that's on product market fit and where that's a story that we're we're very proud of i would say it's not always easy to have your investors as clients <laughs> as you can imagine <laughs> i want to take a quick break from the episode and say if you're enjoying this content the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe so if you're on youtube hit the subscribe button and the notification bell And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. Yeah, so uh, I I, want to double click on that, but I actually wanted to go back a second. So uh, you were talking about like the, the product market fit sounds amazing. I mean, that, you know, the way you described it, you know, building one thing, but then, you know, this really sticky product that just, you know, just takes off for your customers, provides more value than than you even expected yourself. That's, you know, that's a really awesome indicator of product market fit. And uh, so I'm curious, uh, you know, when when you're building this, like, are, is there other uh, like competitors in the space? Are you creating a brand new category with what you're doing? Or is this uh, like, where, where does this kind of fit into the ecosystem of uh, possible solutions uh, available today? Um, so we, we sit on top of existing products. That's one of the most important things that I would say, um, to anyone trying to bring a new kind of product market. Um, 
the rip and repair is going to be hard, especially in an enterprise, right? So we sit on top of uh, products like, well, I don't know if I can call out specific products here, but any kind of workforce product or uh, HR payroll product, we integrate with those products so that we're able to ensure that we're not including staff that are on vacation or FMLA in, in the staffing census and um, our system is able to read schedules and then um, reconstruct formularies and um, uh, sorry, formulas and, and um, generate accurate numbers vis-a-vis um, the staffing need of the organization and efficiently and effectively communicate those needs out and even auto-approve staff based on configurable settings. So um, the value add is a little bit easier on the implementation side to realize, I would say, because we play ball really well, we integrate with HR and payroll systems and scheduling products that are already in this space. Um, I would say the hard part is convincing an organization to pay for an additional subscription or, or SaaS product. Um, you know, they look at their expenses like, you know, well, I'm already paying for all these products. Why, you know, why would I bring in an additional product? So you, you have to communicate value. They typically... You don't, nobody walks into a healthcare organization and picks up all, you know, 150 facilities. So they're going to give you some proof of concept facilities. You can prove value there, show that the R, the return on investment is, let's say, 15 to 1, 8 to 1. You know, for every $1 spent on the product, you're saving 15 and you're saving um, 1 or 8. And, and that's actually the same formula that that we use to gain investment as well, right? Like here's how your $1 turns into five, turns into 10. So um, for us, communicating the value to our clients has been uh, really successful for our growth process. That's awesome. And it does kind of sound like you're sort of creating a new category with it, where there's like already these platforms that exist for things like you mentioned, like the human capital management, the payroll, the you know, sort of like these internal systems that every health system already has in place, but they're just, you know, those systems don't do this intelligent forecasting and they don't kind of integrate with all these different labor pools and then triage the order of which you reach out to the labor pools and, you know, kind of augment the, uh, you know, the workforce that you have already staffed. So like these tools, the foundation for the data, you know, like kind of the the base level systems are already in place, but there's just no way to utilize them intelligently enough to get true efficiency out of them. So uh, in a way, you're kind of creating this, this uh, what I'm hearing, at least, you're kind of creating this engine that sits on top of all of these existing foundations and makes just all of the data and, you know, maybe, I don't know what the stats are, but maybe like a average workforce is like 60% utilized properly in a hospital but, you know, utilizing your software, you can get that to 80% or 90% efficient utilization for the, the staff members. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just, that's amazing. And it, it does kind of sound like you're creating a new category with, with your, your product and, and what you're doing with Dropstat. Yeah, definitely. That's been a lot of fun for us to really lean into this, um, this AI focused, um, I would say workforce automation is more of what we're looking at, you know, where there's scheduling products out there. We want a system that can autonomously respond to 
um, changes in census when the needs or acuity flexes up or down and really ensure that the process is managed um, effectively uh, both on the the labor law side, ensuring that we drive union contracts, that we prioritize internal staff uh, before outsourced labor. And what's nice is that utilizing DropStat, our clients can ensure that they're only using temporary staffing solutions and overtime when it's critically necessary, right? So the product does that kind of autonomously, um, which, which really helps create not only process efficiency, but also cost efficiency and um, really decreases the unsafe staffing that, you know, every time you see um, nurses kind of strike or picket, it's it's never because, you know, they just want to get paid more. It's always, uh, you know, to protest and to advocate for patient care. Um, because what the hospitals and health systems would do without these solutions on deck is, you know, if if they tried to allocate over time and they tried to source uh, temporary labor solutions, exhausting those, they would just give additional patients to uh, the staff that are present. And the problem with that is that we know that there's an increased mortality rate every time you do that. When you give a nurse an extra patient over um, the published safe staffing uh, numbers, right? Every patient is at risk. You just, you can't be in two places at once. You, you can't be resuscitating in one room and recognizing early stroke s- symptoms in another while, um, you know, being able to, uh, you know, see in, uh, potential signs of an early wound dehiscence or, or, or bleed early on, right? And we would never do that to a pilot, right? We'd never be like, well, this pilot couldn't come to work, so I need you to fly two planes. I want the the illusion of I can give you more patience because I can physically see you standing in front of me and because you, it, it feels like you should be able to take on those additional patients. We're putting our loved ones at risk. And what's wild is that the consumers don't even know. Like you have more information about how clean the kitchen is in a McDonald's than how safely staffed your hospital or health system is. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally believe you on that. And it's, uh, I, I'm thinking, I'm just kind of thinking while you're talking, it, it would seem to me that, uh, you know, not only is it way more costly to hire uh, temp staff for a hospital, but I imagine it's even more inefficient because, you know, one, they don't know the other staff members, the other nurses, the doctors, they don't know the facility layout, they don't know where to look for things, you know, they're probably running around trying to figure out what room number to go to and they get a call and, so I, I just imagine it's like way more inefficient to have temp staff versus just better better utilizing the staff you already have. Yeah, you know, there's there's definitely those nurses that can tuck and roll anywhere, and they work in uh, travel staffing organizations. And I, some of the best patient care hacks that I've gotten have come from nurses who can just like like you're saying but get that quickly, right? They can jump into any situation in any hospital and get it. Um, Where we find better response time, also to speak to your point though, is where you, okay, 311 is the number that we call if there's ever, you know, I don't know, code white, you know, like that 
that rapid ability to respond based on specific policies and procedures where internal staff are, they are trained longer on that process than, uh, than temporary labor. Definitely there is a safety and uh, liability consideration here as well, which obviously does extend to, uh, or can, I would say, extend to patient outcomes. So definitely, you know, the safest option. And, and honestly, the best thing for our healthcare systems is to be able to autonomously build their own labor pool. Like healthcare facilities need to be able to build good staffing um, pools and and a, a solid staffing team internally. And they need to be able to retain and engage their people and really only use temporary labor solutions when necessary. Until now, I would say a lot of the staffing solutions, quote unquote, have been really predicated on um, this is the solution. I'm going to lure your staff away from you with the offer of higher dollar per hour and then sell them right back to you, right? Is that really a staffing solution? I mean, I, we're kind of creating a problem and then positioning ourselves as a solution where health healthcare organizations need to be able to, to stand on their own two feet and retain and engage their labor teams and um, ensure that they can build a cohesive uh, culture internally as well. So that's definitely a priority for us. And there's a lot that that you actually can can do to automate culture. I know this sounds wild, but like we've kind of gamified the platform as well. We're we're an AWS, we're an Amazon Accelerator graduate, and we came through their global workforce um, solution. Uh, cohort and we are integrated with Amazon and we've kind of gamified the platform too. So like every time staff pick up a shift, they're creating a safer staffing environment for everyone, for nurses, for patients, for um, and they get points towards like Amazon gift cards and um, on the the shift manager side as well. Every time staff are approved that are not in overtime, they get, you know, additional points because, you know, from a patient safety perspective, um, or let me ask you as a consumer, right? Who do you want taking care of your loved one? Someone who's working an hour 50 or someone who's working an hour 36? You know what I mean? Um, you want, I mean, you that's, want, yeah, no brainer, obviously. You want, you want your best, most attentive self um, in situations that require you to think quickly on your feet. So um, being able to incentivize safe labor practices for us is a huge, um, a huge effort that we're very proud of. That's awesome. Uh, so I want to go back. You you mentioned uh, the having your first three clients as in, as investors in your angel rounds, and uh, I'd love to double click on that. You mentioned that to me in our pregame call, and uh, you know I we didn't really get into the details, but I'm really curious. Uh, you know, you said there's obviously pros and cons. I'm curious, like what you've learned from having your your you know your first primary customers become investors and what's been the good parts of that? What's been the difficult parts? And, you know, would you do it again uh, if you had the opportunity and just kind of curious your experience there? Yeah. So I would say, um, well, upside is that it, it creates an investor that's incredibly bought in and will look to introduce you to any of their contacts in that space. Right. Um, another is that we're, what is it, 60 some odd percent of enterprise process management systems kind of fail. Um, there's a much, there's much better engagement and adoption, right? They want you to succeed. They see the value. Um, 
and they'll probably have someone internally, like a good internal champion that helps you with the uh, successful implementation on, on the client side, right? So those are all like really good things. And obviously it's not easy to raise, especially in this kind of economy um, and being able to demonstrate value to where your clients are incredibly bought in and are willing to um, to fund the product is incredibly helpful. Uh, on the downside- did they, uh, did they approach you to invest or did you approach yes. them? No, they they approached they approached us, which I think I think was was really nice. Um, the downside is that you now have someone who's really in the weeds on the product side and um, wants the product to work a certain way. And what you don't want to do as an innovator, you don't want to just automate bad process. You want to make sure that like, okay, I understand that that's how you've all always done it, where you couldn't fill, let's say, a nursing assistant position. Um, you've typically filled it with a nurse, but but that's not a good idea because you're paying 3x more and, and you don't want to automate that process, right? Like <laughs> you have to figure out how to like say no sometimes. Um, you have like uh, board meetings where it's like, you know, one of the board members is like, hey, Sarah, you know, the on the calendar scheduling screen, you know, when you click that one button. <laughs> right. So I would say the other downside is nobody waits for board meetings. They'll just text you at two in the morning. So <laughs> there's a little bit of an informality there. Um, and uh, the product side demands, I think, are definitely uh, a lot, a lot more frequent and um, presented with a little more intensity than when you don't have your your clients as investors. Now, I, I actually don't have any of our clients as board members. So um, now that we, you know, now that we're past that initial angel round, I'm I'm not I'm not accountable. I would say on that on that level as board members. So that's kind of nice. But um, yeah, so there's there's pluses and minuses. And to be honest, even with the downside of, of the higher demand on the product side, it does force you to really intimately know the avatar that, you know, the persona that you're looking to um, kind of thrill with the product. So it gives you, it's faster and more intense, obviously, but it does give you really good insights into who is the client? What are their needs? Which obviously coming from this space, I thought I had down, you know, as an early founder, but you end up learning so much more when you're actually building product. Um, and a lot of how you thought the product would behave when you take it to market, there's definitely unexpected um twists and turns in this journey that the product will kind of, it, it does take on a life of its own and um, responding to that, those product demands have, has actually made us, I would say better and stronger, probably faster and sooner than we had anticipated, but, but it's all good. What's your, uh, what's your experience being a tech founder? Has it been a difficult challenge to kind of like understand product management and SaaS and just tech and all the stuff under the hood? Or do you feel like you've gotten, you know, pretty up to speed on it fast? Or what's your, uh, what's your experience there? Yeah, I love it. It's definitely my drug of choice. And <laughs> having had to learn this much, I can't imagine not utilizing this information again. Um, 
you know, having gone through this learning process, I think it's hard to feel new in any space. You know, I, I came from, from trauma surgery and critical care where I was used to being proficient and I had built that proficiency and I was proud of it. Um, and I really loved what I did. I didn't escape bedside care because I didn't, I didn't love it. I just knew that I felt like I was called here and that there was an issue that I could help fix. So I would say, you know, having to learn things and having to be uh, told that, hey, this is how the board meetings need to be structured and um, just feeling like a freshman again, I think for me has been a struggle because you you want to do things right and you want to get it right and you want to get it right quickly. Um, and I think there's a lot of misinformation. Silicon Valley loves to tell everyone that that failing quick and fast is like some kind of, you know, something to celebrate. But like when your PNL is on the line, nobody's celebrating with you when your projections are not matching your actuals and when um, you have an unexpected churn, right? So the way that it's characterized versus the way that it feels, I think is very different. And I'm sure that, that that's something that all founders have to go through, you know, just the humility of the learn and um, having to just respond to whatever the product demands of you. Um, but I would say, honestly, there's in anything new that you learn, there's probably 50 vocabulary words associated with that new practice. And when you master them, you're kind of in on some level, right? Like even in medicine, right? You learn how to speak medical speak, you know, in business. And I think in tech, it's the same way. You learn how to speak client success, PLs. you learn how to speak, um, you know, run rates, and you learn how to try to think like your investors and how to think like your board members and how to anticipate issues. Um, it's all very learnable. I'll tell you one thing that really helped me was, you know, telling myself if I can learn pharmacokinetics. Oh, what I is that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> how, how medications uh, impact the body and move through the body. And um, then I can learn any of this. Yeah. So it's like, as a, as a tech founder, there's many, many hats I'm sure you're wearing, but like three main ones are going to be immersing yourself in the customers and the, like the end users, there's going to be like the tech and the product hat. And then there's like the business hat, which is like developing your culture, understanding, you know, project, you know, financial projections, financial management risk, you know, dealing with investors, all that kind of stuff, raising funds, uh, do you enjoy all three of those hats? Is, how would you rank them? Like where yeah. where do you uh, where do you see yourself having the most fun with what you're doing? Definitely. So um, early on, I would say your your journey as a founder really changes, right? First you first you want to be kind of product focused, where um, you're building the product and ensuring that it meets the needs of the client. And I would say the order that you presented that is perfect. You know, so you want to start out as a product focused CEO, making sure you have product market fit. Does the product um, meet the need of this market? Uh, you know, 
what is the client's experience with this product? And that's where you build out your client success teams. You know, so you start out as like, you know, a product CEO, then as a as a client CEO, um, really making sure that you build out that client success team and and how do we communicate issues and how do we iterate on our um, on our feedback. And then you have to really shift quickly when you want to move into scale and be a sales-focused CEO. And I think that sometimes can be the hardest because you come in knowing that you have a solution to an existing problem. Easy, right? You build a product that you wish you always had. Um, and then you have to make sure that the client sees it as valuable as you do. If it's complex, if it's difficult to learn, if it's difficult to implement, if it takes too much time, you're going to struggle there on on the client client side, um, and then you have to be able to prove as a startup that you can grow and scale quickly, and that you can um, revenue can exceed burn, and that you can um, make sure that the product is adopted at a rate to which you are very hard to compete with. Right. So I think there's different challenges at every every step of the game. But what's nice is I feel like you can, you grow into it, you know, like the same way you don't have a baby and you're like, how do I get them into Princeton or whatever it is that that child, and maybe that's not right for that child. And maybe they, they need an apprenticeship with, with someone in the entrepreneurial space. So the things we think that are going to happen with our product and with our business model as uh, early founders are I would say we're probably looked at um, with the same, oh, that's so cute as like someone who has six kids looking at someone having their first and like having all the answers, you know, like I think the most important thing is like just keep listening, you know, keep listening to um, feedback that you get from clients, feedback that you get from the board and feedback that you get from experienced founders. But ultimately your intuition is what got you there and your intuition um, and being able to filter in or out some of that advice is you need the same skill set that you would utilize when you take care of a child, a loved one, a pet. And, you know, sometimes you'll just know something's wrong and there's nothing clinically that you can see, but that intuition is typically right. You know what I mean? Um, and learning to find your footing as like, no, I'm the parent of this of this newly founded company, right? Even if you're inexperienced, like you have what it takes, you know, trust, trust your gut, trust your intuition, um, keep learning. And, and it's, it's okay. Even if you're an early founder, because you're the one that has everything to lose if things don't go well, right? To trust yourself. That's amazing advice. And I, I can just, the way that you talk, I'm just I'm super impressed by you, Sarah, like your your approach to building this company and, you know, just every step of the way, like immersing yourself in tech and just loving every second of it. And, you know, the whole you know, moving through this whole process of building a company, it's super impressive how you've approached this. Um, so one other thing I wanted to close on, it was really interesting when we talked uh, during our, our first call, you were kind of telling me about just like the state of frontline workers. And, you know, obviously, we do have a lot of elders that are going to be needing a lot of care over the next couple decades. And, you know, wor workers are leaving the industry at 
you know, really high paced rates at the moment. Uh, a lot, you said COVID fatigue and, you know, just uh, the way that these, you know, kind of schedules and workforce management is handled. It's extremely exhausting and, uh, you know, people are burned out. They're just, you know, uh, losing their health and their sanity. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you were talking about that we didn't get super deep into, but I was really impressed was, you know, kind of like the mental health side of the healthcare workers and, and, uh, you know, really, you know, putting them first and, and, uh, you know, ensuring that the, the people in the industry are able to sustain what they're doing for a long period of time. So I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that, whether it's like macro industry, uh, kind of stats or whether it's more specifically about how you're attacking that problem, but I'd love to kind of hear you tell more of that story. Yeah. Um, the culture in healthcare is, is really difficult. I think part of that is that, um, from the leadership perspective, right? Everything always starts with leadership when you build any other product or industry, the product is in front of you, right? If I were, if, if I were going to go create a sweater company, I can see it. I can feel it. I can touch it. I can tell you if I like the quality. Um, and I can get on the phone, secret shop, my experience. There's, there's a very big disconnect with healthcare leadership in the, especially in the healthcare executive space where, um, they, they struggle to really understand the experience of um, what that product is, right? So, for example, if you have an executive that has to be hospitalized for some kind of issue, they are not going to have the same level of service that you and I have. You mean they'll have way better? They're going to get right in. They're not going to have a six-hour, you know, ER wait. Um, they're, They're not going to sit and watch nurses get yelled at by people that are just overwhelmed in pain and exhausted and, and don't really know how to how to cope with that um, for hours on end because of a, a locked staffing grid, you know. Um, they're they're not going to experience the same service layers that a lot of the clients experience. Uh, and I think it's really hard for them to understand that that patient experience, right? Someone's going to walk in and be like, hey, um, this is your lead physician and this is your fellow and we're going to be working together. And, and he, you know, they're going to get a level of service that patients don't really experience, right? And a lot of the frustrations with their product, right, which is healthcare, they're, they're not going to be really in tune with that, right? And you have the patient care product and then you have like the actual culture on the unit. And just one, one note on that you were sharing uh, that you attended a, a executive focused conference and that, you know, if you kind of closed your eyes and stood back and just listened to the conversation, it's not clear whether they're talking about, you know, healthcare and saving lives and, you know, treating patients or whether they're talking about, you know, manufacturing and selling widgets, it was all just like, so numbers focused that, you know, it was just, you know, abstracted just away to the finances and kind of the nuts and bolts of the PL. It was, I would say the hardest healthcare conference to get invited to four days. Um, and I sat in on all these different uh, presentations with all these different hospital systems. And this is only C-suite, right? You would not know 
when you hear listening to any of the lectures, never once did I hear doctor, nurse, or patient mentioned. It was all cash on hand. Um, it was all, uh, you know, maybe workforce, but um, nothing really focused on the experience of the nurses and patients. So, and, that, and that's a really big problem because when you look at the churn that you're experiencing in this space and um, the patient experience is just it, something needs to change. Because if you look at the, you know, if you look at Google and Amazon and all the big companies in this, they've growth hacked, making their employees feel valued at scale. There's no reason we can't do that with 2,500 employees in one hospital. Like, it's not really acceptable. Absolutely. Uh, and I interjected with that conference thread, but uh, you were going to, uh, you were talking about kind of the executive side of, you know, healthcare systems, and you were getting to the part about, you know, the the individuals working uh, bedside with the patients. Yeah, and putting that together, Um I would say, you know, where where nurses have long said we feel like we're just a line item going to these conferences and hearing that we are not a line item, we're completely invisible, I think was disheartening. And there's so much opportunity to improve the experience. When when we talk about burnout, right, I want to clarify who we're losing. We're not losing people who don't care. We are losing people who emotionally are giving this job their all and don't want to go home anymore with that, uh, with the moral injury of I was given three patients to take care of instead of two in a critical care setting. And um, I had to give my my meds late on this patient and they end up, you know, having a seizure or they ended up having going into AFib with RVR and having an arrhythmia because I gave medications late, right? Like there's, there's all this stuff aside from the fact that like, these are people who have signed up to walk through people's nightmares with them, right? This is a tough job. You know, think about people um, living through like a war zone. It, that is every day for healthcare professionals. They see more, more death and loss than most active duty uh, combat members. And we, we don't really think about that experience. Think about what a trauma nurse, a NICU nurse, any nurse and any and any physician, any healthcare worker in a healthcare organization experiences on a day to day, and then they go home and take out the trash and make dinner for their kids, and like you know what I mean. So, not having any on deck solutions to um, help healthcare staff through these issues, especially when, you know, it's tough enough to ensure quality when the conveyor belt is going at a regular pace. Now you pull that thing on warp speed and, and, and require people to have the same quality um, outcomes. It's not going to happen. We have not even experienced the full force of the boomers on the healthcare system, right? So we're looking at a huge rush on our healthcare needs. We're looking at increased comorbidities. We're looking at at, at major supply demand staffing uh, issues that we're going to have to tackle in the next few years. And there really isn't a more important time for people to kind of get their hands, um, you know, roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty in this healthcare space because there's so much opportunity here for process improvement um, and to ensure that this healthcare system that we are all aging into is where we want it to be. It's not going to be there for us if we don't take an active role and uh, look around and say, you know, as a problem solver, as an innovator, 
how would I want this to work better? That's amazing. And that's, that's such a, I mean, I, when you were telling the story about, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, walking through, you know, signing up for a career of walking through people's nightmares every day. I mean, that literally, you know, I could feel like a chill hit my spine, uh, as you were saying that I was just super, uh, you know, profound and, and, uh, just really meaningful to, to hear it phrased like that. I've never heard anyone say, uh, that, that particular phrasing. So really is, uh, you know, a tough, tough industry, I think. And, and, uh, you know, it's awesome what you're doing. I'm, I'm really excited to see that there's, you know, people out there that are, you know, figuring out how to, how to make the industry more efficient, figuring out how to give the, the frontline staff, uh, you know, a better quality of life and a better work experience. And, just super amazing. Uh, as we wrap up here, is there anything, you know, do you want to plug something for Dropstat? Is there anything, you know, where, where can people find you if they want to reach out? Uh, you know, what, what do you want to plug? Yeah, well, I, I'd like to pay forward the um, the help and value that I've been given in the space. Nobody ever climbs anywhere alone, especially people that consider themselves quote unquote self-made. None of us are self-made. Um, we've all had opportunity um, we've all had the privilege of meeting people who've given us maybe advice, um, who've somehow inspired us. And um, I've had the uh, the privilege of being able to source some really incredible mentors in this space. And um, there's definitely something I can do to help someone's journey, right? So maybe it's a contact that I have on LinkedIn. Maybe it's, um, you know, boilerplate paperwork for, for diligence, which is so expensive. Um, there's definitely an opportunity here somewhere where um, the help and support that I got on this journey can be paid forward. So I would say to anyone looking to um, improve uh, healthcare in particular, but any of these um any any space that would really benefit humanity, uh, I'm all about it. If there's anything I can do to help and support your journey, um, I, I would specifically like to give a little bit more attention to the underrepresented founders. Um, we know that only 1.9% of uh, institutional uh, investment or or VC money goes to female only founded companies, and we we need to boost that. We know Bloomberg has put out numbers that uh, female founders return 2.5 times um, the ROI in comparison to our our male colleagues, and that is not a knock on our uh, on our male colleagues at all, but only to bring to light the fact that if nothing else, investing in women is a good investment. And if there's anything I can do to help improve those numbers a little bit, um, I have investor contacts that uh, I would not ever charge for. Um, if there's anyone in my network that I can connect someone with, if there's any guidance that I can provide, um, this was all handed to me and I would, uh, I'd be very, I'd be very honored to be able to help someone's journey in the same way. Can they find you on LinkedIn or how, how should people yeah. connect? Yeah, Sarah, no H, well, no S, I always say, Sarah, well, um, on LinkedIn would probably be the best way to to get a hold of me. I'm, I'm relatively responsive as when I can be on my uh, messages. Otherwise, my my marketing team is also logged into, uh, you know, all the different ways that you can contact me through LinkedIn. So 
someone will will uh, respond somehow and uh, more than happy to help anyone else's journey and um, go for it. Like, don't let anyone rain on your parade. You can do this. That's great advice. Uh, we'll put we'll put the link to your LinkedIn in the show notes and uh, awesome episode. That's the uh, that's the episode. Cash flow?